As you came in, hopefully you received a, a worship guide. I know sometimes we, I grew up calling it bulletin, and so, you know, the piece of paper that tells you about what's, uh, what's happening in the church and what we do in worship. On the back of that worship guide, on the back of the bulletin, are some notes that you can use to follow along during the sermon, and also, hopefully, in that worship guide was a piece of paper that we are going to reference here in just a few minutes as we go through the sermon and think about what it is to live as, as God's people. So, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Hopefully opening your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 makes you feel like you're stuck in the twilight zone. So, you're like, I thought we were finished with 1 Peter. We went through all those weeks. And we thought we were finished with 1 Peter. Well, I did too. I thought we were finished with 1 Peter too. But uh, I feel like the Lord has brought us back around one more week, maybe, at least one more week, to 1 Peter. And so hopefully your Bible falls open naturally or your phone is already favorited, is already saved to 1 Peter. And so you'll be able to, to find it without any trouble. We did go through 11 weeks of walking through 1 Peter before Easter, and then last week having a chance to celebrate Easter, remembering who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives and in our world. And so now we are beginning to move into a new series, a new time of studying God's Word on Sunday morning, where we're intentionally looking at what does it mean to be a church. We talked about through First Peter what does it mean to be a Christian, But if we're not careful, Christian can begin to take on a very individualistic, very private notion. But being a Christian is a group idea. From the very beginning of God's Word, God creates a people, a people who will be together. And so we need to understand, we need to be able to answer the question, what is a church? Why do we exist as a church? What should a church be doing? And we're going to begin to explore that. And so... It takes us back to 1 Peter. The Lord's taking us back to 1 Peter this morning. Here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to read a couple of verses for us from 1 Peter, and then we're going to jump in this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, as we sit out on this trek to understand, to explore what it means to be a church, one of the things we want to think through and be very clear about is why does the church exist? And one of the ways we're going to explore that is by begin moving into a study of the book of Acts. And so just a couple of weeks down the road, we're going to devote ourselves to the book of Acts, and that will take us throughout the summer. I know in the summer, we go on vacations, and we're traveling, and we've got different things going on, and then we'll also have visitors coming in. But it gives us a chance together 
to think about what does it mean to be a church. And remember, and, and, and please hear my heart on this. I don't do this to, to promote my sermons. But if you miss a week and you think, I really wonder what's happening in the study of Acts. I really wonder what we're talking about. Remember that we have the opportunity to access those sermons on our website. And so if you go to fbcbsl.com, you can access those sermons. And so we can stay on track. Um, I know that two people watch the sermons every week, and that would be my mom and my grandma. But, uh, you know, to know that maybe three people watch a sermon during the week would be really great. Uh, And so we've got those out there as an opportunity to continue to study God's Word as we move into the book of Acts. But this morning, specifically, we're thinking through what is our mission as a church. Now, if you work in a business setting uh, of some type, you work for a corporation or a company, it became very popular a few decades ago for a company, and it's always existed, but it became very popular for a company to lay out its vision statement or its mission statement, or its value statement. And a lot of companies will will have it up on the wall, or or they'll talk about it at different meetings. And the reason those exist is so that you know why that company exists. So you can say, this is who we are as this business, as this corporation. Well, churches began to catch on to this idea of having purpose statements and vision statements. There was a church in California uh, called Saddleback Church, Uh, A guy named Rick Warren pastors there, and and he wrote a book called A Purpose-Driven Church. And churches began to think about this question, what is our purpose? Why why do we exist? And I think it's an important discussion. First Baptist Church, Bay St. Louis, has had a mission statement uh, going back a couple of decades now, as far as I understand. And I put the mission statement on your notes, and so you can see it there on the back of the bulletin. The mission statement for First Baptist has been... In order to glorify God, the mission of First Baptist Church of Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, is to develop disciples by involving its fellowship in worship and ministry that result in evangelism, Christian training, and service. Now, there's, hear me say, there's nothing wrong with, with that mission statement. It includes some very important words. It includes some concepts that describe who we are and what we want to be about. One of the problems we run into with a mission statement like that, though, is, frankly, it's a little bit complex. (laughs) There's a lot of words going on. There's a lot of ideas. Words are tying into other words. Some words are churchy words that may, may not communicate well who we are and what we're trying to do. And so what I would like to do, and something that the Lord has been putting on my heart from the very time that I felt like God was leading our family to Bay St. Louis, and Amanda and I were praying about what this journey would look like, is I would like to propose that our church adopt a mission statement that's a little bit shorter, maybe a little bit simpler, but hopefully describes who we're going to be. And what I would like to propose to you is that mission statement would be, we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. So if someone asks you, why do you go to that religious meeting? On Sunday morning. Why, why are you a part of that church? Like, what are you guys all about? Why do you exist there? You could say, you know what? We just exist to proclaim and display Jesus. And then we'll be able to start to fill that out. And you say, well, why, why that? What's the big deal? Hear me very clearly from the beginning. My words for a mission statement in no way compare 
and are no way on the same level as God's word given to us in scripture, okay? So we're, mission statements don't change anyone's life. God's word, God's spirit is what brings life change. A mission statement, though, can focus our hearts and can focus our minds and can focus our energy on who God is calling us to be as a church. And as a church, based on God's word, and this flows out of Colossians 1, 28 through 29, which is a text that was the sermon that I preached the first week that, that I was here back in January. And I know you don't remember last week's sermon, so I don't expect you to remember the one in January. But, but that text tells us that we proclaim Jesus, that that's who we're going to be. And we not only proclaim Jesus with our mouth, but we display Jesus. We live out what it means to follow Jesus. And so James and I have spent time on a whiteboard writing down ideas. And and James has been really great to say, oh, and I think maybe it should look more like this. And so we've gone back and forth and we prayed together. And, And I've spoken with the deacons and we've spent time looking at this together. And I really believe that this is something, this mission statement is something that does not change anyone's life, but it can refocus our church. And it can bring us together to say, this is why we exist. We exist to proclaim and display Jesus. And what I want to show you this morning is that that statement is embedded in the truth of God's word, and specifically in 1 Peter chapter 2 here, okay? So let's look back at 1 Peter chapter 2. Forgetting for just a moment the idea of a mission statement, let's look more importantly at God's word and what 1 Peter says here. On your notes, you'll notice that it's we exist as, and it gives you four things that we exist as, and then it says we exist in order to or we exist to, and it's going to give you the result of that. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter tells the people, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, one of the things I want us to understand about those verses right there, and this is something that Peter does throughout his letter, but what Peter is doing here is he is drawing on wording from the Old Testament. These phrases right here, and, and, and the background, if you want to write it down, I know some Bibles have reference notes out to the side, but if you want to write this down, Peter is going back to Exodus chapter 19, and he's going back to Isaiah chapter 43. And he's picking out words and phrases that were used in the Old Testament to describe God's people. If you're not familiar with your Bible, the Old Testament is that beginning portion. It's those first 39 books that tell us about how God is creating the world and how God is forming a people. And he draws together a people and he uses a man named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, it tells us how God chose Abraham as he called Abraham out and said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to form a new nation and a new people. And that people will exist for my glory, and that people will exist to make my blessing and make my greatness known to the world around us. And so through Abraham, God began to form his people. But there was one problem that existed. As the people came together as Israel, as the Jews, they started to become more focused on being chosen as God's people and less focus on the purpose behind God choosing them. 
You see, God had chosen to create a people for himself so that his blessings would be made known to the whole world. He blessed them in order that they would be a blessing to others. And we have to remember today, when God blesses us, he doesn't bless us so that we will feel great about ourselves. He blesses you, he blesses your family so that you will be a blessing to others. But by the time we get to the New Testament, some of the Jewish people were focused more on protecting their ranks than they were on being a blessing to other people. And so when we get here and Peter says, you are a chosen race, what he is telling them is their identity as a church, their identity as a group of people is not based on their ethnic background. It's not based on their racial identity. Their identity as a group is based solely on Jesus. And so we exist to proclaim and display Jesus because Jesus is the one that brings us together. Ethnic lines, racial lines, none of that determines a person standing before the Lord. It's simply Jesus. When we adopted Emory into our family, she did not have to change her racial and ethnic makeup in order to become a part of our family. She became fully a part of our family when we adopted her in, and she kept her racial identity. Her racial identity will always be different than ours, but she is 100% fully part of our family. The same thing works with the people of God. Racial identities don't go away. God has still created us as black and white, Indian Native American, make your distinctions however you want. We still keep those backgrounds. They are part of who we are. But the thing that brings us together is Jesus. In the early church, the Christians started to become known in some areas as kind of a third race. Uh, There was the Jews, the Gentiles, and then these people called Christians, where Jew and Gentile wasn't the defining mark. It was this guy named Jesus. And in 2014, it is good that we are known because of Jesus. We don't need white churches and black churches and these types of churches. We are drawn together because of Jesus. And in 2014, we have to remember that God chooses us. He brings us together as his people in order that we can be a blessing to others who do not yet worship him. Because just like the Jews at the time of Jesus, it's sometimes easy for church people to become more focused on protecting their ranks than on reaching out into the world around us. We say things like, those people out there wouldn't really belong in here or wouldn't really fit in here. You know, maybe if they fixed a few things or got a few things together, then they could come and be a part of us. And even when we don't say that verbally, sometimes that will begin to reflect in our, in our hearts. But we are not chosen by God as his people in order to protect our ranks. We are chosen by God as his people in order to be able to be a blessing to others, to spread his message of hope and salvation to others. And so Peter tells us here that we exist as a chosen race. Second thing that Peter tells us, he says you're not only a chosen race, but you are a royal priesthood. The priests were a group of people who were known for their purity. And if you were with us as we went through the study of 1 Peter, holiness and purity 
are big time themes in First Peter, explaining who God's people are, that they are made pure by Christ and they are set aside to minister for God in the world. Now, some of you may have grown up, and, and, and hear me out on this, some of you may have grown up in a church where there was a priest involved in the church, and that priest carried out different duties. Our church here, we're what's called a Protestant church. Um, as a Baptist church, we're, we were part of the groups that came out through the Protestant Reformation. One of the beliefs that we hold to is called the priesthood of the believer. In other words, we do not go through a priest in order to access God. We believe that because of God's work in our life through Jesus, that we have direct access to the Father by God's grace through Jesus. And so you don't go to a priest in order to do certain rituals to access God. And please don't hear me speaking badly about that, that type of religious tradition, other than to say God's word seems very clear here that we do not need to go through a priest because you are called a priest. And so if someone says, hey, what's your job? You can really throw them off and say, well, I'm a priest. You know? And they're saying, but where's your, where's your collar? Or, or you're female, or, or you're married, and you say, yeah, but, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that we've been created as a royal priesthood. That because of Jesus, we have access to God, we're expected to live pure and holy lives, and we're expected to minister for Him to the world. And so we're called a royal priesthood here. Next phrase, we are called a holy nation. Just as our ethnic background or our racial background does not become the defining characteristic of our life, in the same way, our national heritage does not become the defining characteristic of our relationship with God. You can be an American, and hear me clearly on this, be very proud to be an American, and at the same time have the same relationship to God that someone in Russia has. And if we're very careful, that should, that, that should make us pause for just a minute. Because we live in a media-saturated world. We live in a secular world in which we are taught, sometimes subliminally, that those are the bad people. And we're not going to have anything to do with them because they live across this particular national border. But in Jesus, our brothers and sisters in Russia, they are having the same relationship with God that we have with God. And we are brought together as a holy nation. Now, we still live together as Americans we still worship as Americans. We still value our American citizenship, but our ultimate identity, our ultimate identity is as citizens of God's kingdom, of that nation. So we're a holy nation. And then the last phrase here, it says, we are a people for God's own possession. In other words, we have to remember that we don't possess God. He possesses us. And sometimes if we're not careful, we belittle God and we think that we possess God in order to get what we can from Him. But don't forget, we don't possess God. We're not in charge of God. God is in charge of our lives. And if He is in charge of our lives, then it means He possesses us for a particular purpose. And that's what we get in verse 9 at the end. It says, You are a people for His own possession in order that you may proclaim... There's that word proclaim that you'll only hear about a thousand times in the next couple of months. But that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I asked Corey to sing that song on purpose this morning but it, because it includes that phrase, marvelous light. A modern day songwriter didn't come up with that phrase. That phrase is straight from, from scripture right here. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So one of the purposes, one of the reasons that we exist as God's people is in order to proclaim his greatness to others. Now proclaim is something that we do with our mouths. It's something that we verbalize, we express to others, this is who our great God is. This is what he has done in my life, and this is what he wants to do in your life. So we proclaim his greatness, and we tell people, I was in darkness. I was separated from God, but God rescued me and called me out of that darkness, and he will do the same thing in your life. We proclaim his greatness and what he's done. And then look in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Did you see what Peter did there? He said, when you understand your identity as a church, you will proclaim God's greatness, and then it will affect the way that you live. You will abstain from sinful pleasures. You will stay away from those things. You will live a holy life, and you will do good deeds so that people will glorify God. So our existence as Christians, our existence as a church, should affect the things that we say and the things that we do. Not, not rocket science, but it's embedded directly in God's word, and it should impact the things that we do as a church. So, what's the big deal? What am I aiming at? Pull out the piece of paper that was in your worship guide, or, or hopefully in your worship guide. I want to give you a visual representation of who we want to be as a church and, and explain a little bit about the impact that this should have. I tried to get the font as big as I could, so sorry if you're having to squint. I was trying hard to, to make it a little bit bigger. In the top left of that paper, in all capital letters, it says, we exist to proclaim and display Jesus. That, that's who we're going to be. Based on Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, there are three ways that we want to do that. We want to do that supremely. Jesus is greater than all else. We want to do that fully. Jesus impacts all of our life. And we want to do that widely. Every person on the planet needs to know about the greatness and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. So we exist to proclaim and display Jesus supremely, fully, widely. Now, I know that many of you are visual people. You can hear something all day long, but until you see it, it doesn't quite click. So I made a chart, all right? We got a chart here. Across the top, two, there creates two columns. Proclaim what we verbalize, what we do with our words, what we say, and display our actions, the way that we live our lives. So we exist to proclaim 
and display Jesus. Everything I say, everything I do should point to Jesus. Down the left side, it says supremely. That's the idea of worship, that Jesus is Lord, that he is worth everything that I have to give. And so we worship Jesus supremely. We worship him fully. That's the idea of discipleship. You learn to follow Jesus. You learn to live as Jesus would have you live. And widely. That's the idea of missions. If Jesus really is as important as we said that he is this morning, every single person, no matter what barriers we have to cross to get there, every single person needs to know about that. So you say, yeah, but I still don't understand how it impacts my life. That's why we have the interior boxes, okay? You ready to draw your fingers together? You know how columns and rows work. And so, how do we proclaim Jesus supremely? Well, this is the idea when you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, at the moment of salvation, you are proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. You are proclaiming that He is supreme. Not the pizza, but the great. Supreme is not the best pizza, but it's the best word I could come up with. And so we proclaim Jesus as greater than all else. He is supreme. And you do that in a one-time sense at the moment of salvation. When you pray and you cry out to God for salvation and say, Jesus is Lord, I'm following him. But we also do that in an ongoing way through corporate and private worship. When you gathered this morning and you lifted up your voice in song, you were proclaiming and celebrating that Jesus is Lord. And we were doing that together. When you go home, and you pray with your kids or your spouse, you pray at night, you share with your friends. When you're, when you're doing those things, you're celebrating. You're doing that in a private sense, but you're still proclaiming that Jesus is worth everything. But we don't, we don't just do that with our mouths, we do it with our lives. And so over to the right, right column, top row, we can display that Jesus is worth everything through baptism. That's a one-time thing. Even though Tommy and Megan love the cold water this morning, they're not going to get baptized next week. That is a one-time way that we display that Jesus is Lord. And so we do that to show Jesus is Lord just like I confessed him with my mouth. And then there are ongoing ways that we display that. When we take the Lord's Supper, this will not be the last time that we take the Lord's Supper unless the Lord calls us home between now and then. But we do that as an ongoing way to proclaim Jesus as Lord. When we gather together as God's people, when you say, I'm going to join this church, and I'm going to pour my life into making this gospel known with this group of people, you are proclaiming that Jesus is worth more to you than anything else. You're joining together with God's people. And so we do that supremely. Then move down to the second row. When I proclaim Jesus fully, that means I want to know all I can about God's Word. I want to know all about the Bible. I want to know all about who Jesus is. And then I want to be able to teach that. When you proclaim Jesus fully, you are able to tell other people about who Jesus is, why He matters, what the Bible teaches. And so you know those things, but you know them in order to teach them. And then over to the right, we display Jesus fully. We live out what the Bible says. It does no good to be able to teach someone about the Bible if your life does not reflect God's Word. And so we don't need people who say smart facts about the Bible and then live an unholy life. We know God's Word, 
we teach God's word and we live out God's word. We model for other people, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then down at the bottom, we proclaim Jesus widely. We tell others about Jesus. We will cross every barrier. We will knock down every wall. We will do whatever it takes to go and tell people about Jesus. But you don't just say it with your words, you also display it with your actions. So if there are people across your street who need something, or there are people around the world who need something, we will go to serve them. We will tell them about Jesus, and we will serve them in the name of Jesus. So what does this look like? It looks like a couple comes, an individual comes, and they say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to follow him with my whole life. And they confess him as Lord. And then they say, I want to show people what God's done in my life. And so they're baptized. And they say, I want to make my life a part of a church. And so I'm going to gather with that church every week to celebrate Jesus. I'm going to gather with that church in order to take of the Lord's Supper, to be a part of that church and church membership. But I realize that I need to know God's word. So I'm going to study God's Word in a Sunday school class or in a small group Bible study, and I'm going to know God's Word enough that I can teach that to my friends and my family members. And then God's Word gets inside of their life, and they start to live it out. They're living as a follower of Jesus. They're modeling for their family and their friends what it means to follow Jesus. But if Jesus is really worth that much to them, they're going to go and tell other people. So they cross their street or they go across state lines, or they go around the world and they tell people about Jesus. But when they cross their street to tell someone about Jesus, they find out that their neighbor needs help. They need a coat. They need financial help. They need counseling. They need something. And they say, I'm not just here to tell you about Jesus. I'm here to serve you in Jesus' name. I'm here to help you in whatever way I can. And their neighbor is so struck by the love that they're expressed in Christ, guess what? Their neighbor confesses Jesus as Lord. And their neighbor says, hey, what, what do I do next? And this person says, well, I don't know much, but, but I think you can be baptized in order to show people what God's done in your life. And then you can join with, us, with our church because we celebrate Jesus every week. And then the neighbor says, yeah, but how do I know more about Jesus? Well, we have a chance to be a part of Bible study and we learn God's word. And they begin to learn God's word and they say, hey, I think I should live this out in my life. And then their life is transformed and they think, I should go and tell somebody about this. So they cross the street and they tell their neighbor about Jesus. And they find out that their neighbor needs help. And their neighbor hears about Jesus and guess what their neighbor might do? Confess Jesus as Lord. And it cycles like that. And it's nothing that we structure It's nothing that we manipulate. It's nothing that we make happen on our own strength. But it says we exist to proclaim and display Jesus supremely, fully, and widely. And as God, by his spirit and by his word, begins to work that into the culture of our lives, into the culture of our church, you know what happens? All of of a sudden, the unimportant things start to get pushed to the side. Because all of our resources... All of our time, all of our energy is focused on these things. And the things that the enemy might want to use to distract us or to cause disunity or to cause us to spend our money on time on things that don't matter, 
Those things are pushed to the side because this is what we're going to be about. We're going to be about living out this mission and giving our lives for it. Not because it's a cool phrase that Owen and James came up with, but because it's at the heart of God's word. That we exist as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that we will abstain from those passions of the flesh that wage war. That we will keep our conduct honorable. And that we will do good deeds and people will see that and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Do you want to be a part of a church like that? Do you want to see that take root in your life? I'm not particularly concerned that you're you're excited about my mission statement I'm particularly concerned that you are excited about God transforming your life and God transforming this body of believers so that we begin to live this out for God's glory. We're going to have a time of prayer here in just a second, and then Corey is going to come and lead us in a song. And it's a song that establishes kind of that foundation for who we're going to be as God's people. If God is calling you to be a part of this church. I realize you may be visiting or you know, this may be your first time or something, but if God is really working in your heart and saying, this is what I need to be a part of, this is who he's calling me to, I would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. Or you may have seen this couple baptized this morning and you may be thinking that is the step that I need to take to follow Jesus, to confess him as Lord and to follow him in baptism. And if God is working in your heart in that way, I want to be available to talk with you as well. Let's pray together and then we're going to stand in just a moment and sing. God, thank you.